All right. So I'm always very excited about the sermons, always. But I have to start this particular sermon with an apology. And the apology is to the group of people who are brand new here, and then to the people who are not brand new here. <laughs> so that's pretty much a blanket apology, okay? To the people who are new here, you know something about what we do, and that is, is that we love to go through Scripture. I love to get everything out of the Word. It's not we go through a book and we don't do it exegetically, but what we do do, we go through the whole book. But we're looking, we're looking to do the books the same way we do our daily devotionals, which is what is God trying to say to me today? right? And so we look for that insight and we look for that revelation and we trust that from week to week, what the Lord's going to do is take us on a journey, a discipleship journey, and he's going to take us from point A to point B, wherever it is that he wants to go, right? So that's what we've been doing and that's what we like to do and everything else. These first few weeks, we're not doing that because there's been this thing that we felt like the Lord led us to do, which is 2020. And it's this thing. And we had initially planned to just do uh, uh, Kevin and then Justine and then me on this 2020 because usually the Lord will speak something at the beginning of the year. We don't know what it is, but he'll speak something. He'll give us a revelation that'll provide for us the foundation of what he's going to be doing throughout the next season. He'll let us know where he's taking us and then he'll take us there. And that is very definitely what's happened. But I gotta tell you, there's been this really weird thing that's happened to me. And that is... There's this thing that's been building in me for months now, as I've looked at things like so many of our long-termers moving out of town, and as I've looked at what this church is and what it's supposed to be, and as I've prayed, and as I spent, at this point in time, it's really not at all too much to say I've prayed hundreds of hours. What's God doing? Why? How? What does this all mean? Make sure that I'm not just putting a good spin on something. Make sure I'm actually getting the Lord's heart right. So I'm apologizing to those who have been here for a while because this sermon that you're about to hear, you've, you've heard this in bits and pieces and more throughout the last months as he's been building something in me. And I had planned one day on this particular topic, thinking that's what the Lord was going to do through me. And sure enough, I went out to pray, and it was very much this. But he very much took me to halfway through it and then stopped me and said, I want you to look at this, and I want you to understand that there's a decision that has to be made. And I don't want you to go into what's next, because you need to present to my people this decision, this thing. So this is very, very heavy on my heart. And again, if you've heard this in various fashions as it's been coming clearer and clearer to me, I'm asking for an apology, but I'm also asking for something else. I'm asking for you to understand that God is the one who's repeating it, but he's not repeating it. He's developing it. He's taking it to another place, and I'm asking you to embrace this place that he's taking us to, because I, 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 it is, this may sound grandiose, but I really believe that the future of, America, of Christianity in America depends on what we're talking about today. I really believe that with all my heart. I couldn't more strongly believe that. I've been thinking these things for 20 years, 
But now we're right in the middle of it. And I'm just telling you, I think we're in an extremely important moment in the history of Christianity in America. That's what we're talking about, Christianity in America. And so, you know, enter in, okay? Hear what he's trying to say. Forget about the rest. Hear what he's trying to say so that we can do what I think he wants us to do about it. So with that in mind, oh, Andy Davey, this is just great. Uh, you know, um, an adopted son <laughs> praying for us, praying that God would meet us in America. So go ahead, Andy, and lift up another church too. Father, thank you so much for um, what you're going to do here this morning, Lord. Lord, we pray for your, um, your uh, revelation this morning, Lord, that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts, Lord, about uh, what it is that you want to change in our perceptions of you, change in our uh, understanding of you, Lord, that we would, yeah, you would bring more of you into our hearts, Lord, that thank we would you, know um, how to apply that going forward, Lord. Lord, also lift up the churches of the Gold Coast, Lord, that you would also pour out that revelation of who you are to them as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And we pray for the fires too, Lord. Jesus, holy and precious name, put them out. Thank you, Lord. Are they out now? I heard it started raining, but that's not made the difference yet, right? Okay, a little, little lot, okay. Okay, so here's where we are. Here's the big question that we're developing, and that is, what is God doing and why? That's what we're looking at. What is God doing? Big picture. This is a 50,000 or 80,000 foot view right now. What is God doing? And very importantly, why? He's giving us the why so that we can embrace it. So now what I want you to see is a through line between what Kevin started and his was exactly the right sermon. You have to understand, I wish you knew how this really worked with us because we don't sit down and tell Kevin what to speak. In fact, a week before he spoke the sermon that he spoke, he said, I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to do and maybe I'm supposed to do something else and so on and so forth. I mean, he's still working it through as he's trying to get it right in the Lord. And then he gets it not just right in the Lord, but laser right in the Lord because where he started was where we need to start for this season, this thing that he's doing. He's been doing it, but now as we go to the next place in it, there's a thing that is absolutely critical for us to understand and to embrace, and that is, where are you getting your identity from? I realize that's not grammatically correct. I don't care. It sounds weird to say it the other way nowadays, okay? But where, is he, where are you getting your identity from? And here's what this means, just real simply. Are you getting your identity from, as he said in his sermon, are you getting it from Hawaiian shirts or the fact that you don't suntan? Or then he went into something more deep and he said, are you getting it from your job? Are you getting it from your cause? Are you getting it from your ministry? Where are, you getting, where are you getting your identity from? Now, why is identity so important? Because identity is, as I've said up there, the self-image that we all have that determines what we do and don't do. It guides us into what we're becoming. See, if my identity is a programmer, then I pursue certain things, and I don't pursue other things. I make certain choices, and I don't do other things. I gather around certain people and not other people. And the point is, in all of these decisions, I'm actually becoming this image that I have of myself more and more and more. Not perfectly, but you get the point, see? And so the point is, the question that we have to ask is, is where are you getting your identity from? Because here's what he said, and this is what's critical, what I think the Lord was saying through him. Are you getting your identity from any place 
other than God. Because here's what God had to say about identity. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. You know what identity I'm supposed to have? Jesus. Period. Jesus. <laughs> Just being totally honest, that's not my identity. That is not what I self-identify with. Now I have to say, by luck, no, by grace, by God's leading, it ends up being an awful lot about that, given what I do and everything else. But even then, it was a confrontation to me to strip it down, strip it away, and just take an honest assessment of myself and say, do I have Jesus and something else? Because I do. And as long as I do, then I'm never actually gonna get to here because I'll make choices and decisions and take a path that'll be slightly different from Jesus. My identity is supposed to be Jesus. That's how I'm supposed to be conformed and become like, period. Now, great sermon, great start, the heart of it, the very most foundational place I could ever imagine that we would start what it is that God's doing right now. Where are you getting your identity from? And it's supposed to be Christ. Now, Justine comes along, and in a sermon, you just have to listen to it. If you didn't, I know a lot of people were gone still and so on, but if you didn't hear it, you gotta hear it. But she comes along and tells this very endearing story about citizenship and what it was to, uh, you know, just, just wanting to be citizens so she couldn't get deported, but then all of a sudden being in the middle of citizenship and realizing, oh my gosh, what this is. And you see how much identity's in it, right? So there's this huge identity issue of it, but then it goes, it's not that it goes beyond, it builds upon and what it's building upon it is this whole idea that she did about rights and responsibilities. Here's what you cannot be as a citizen. That's not true. You can be this to the harm of the country of which you're a citizen. And that's a lazy river. You know what a lazy river is? A lazy river runs through a hotel or through a really nice house or whatever. And it's just a river that goes real slow. And you just sit in an inner tube and you just kind of go down the inner tube drinking a beer or whatever. You can't be that and actually have a good country. If everybody's just taking the lazy river, they're, taking, they're going with the flow, and the flow is not going where God's going. So what she came back and said was, you got to get, engage it, you gotta participate. That's what she got out of it, her ceremony, and that's what she brought to us as Christians. She said, you have to understand, you have to participate in order to make it be what it's going to be. And when I say the fate, of American Christianity hangs in the balance right now, that's the word. Are you gonna participate in what he's doing and why or not? If we're not going to, then we're going to find ourselves in a place, as I'll show in a little bit, that we're gonna be going, what the heck? What happened? And what happened was, is we squandered, okay? So with that in mind, the thing that we're going after, this is a word that I've been talking about, this shift that's happening between boomers and millennials and the, the, the zeitgeist, which is spirit of the age. But I've been talking about the fact that just a few weeks ago, really, probably maybe six weeks ago, I realized that the proper term for it is zeitgeist transition. And zeitgeist transition, here's what a zeitgeist is, spirit of the age, it means how does, not every person in the culture, there's always gonna be outliers, but how does the culture see things? 
How do they think about things? How do they process things? What's going on? Now, you can see immediately right now, doesn't matter if you're old enough to understand the boomer transition, you can see immediately right now that there's a huge zeitgeist transition happening, right? Because there was a way of looking at the world and seeing the world and understanding the world with its good stuff and its bad and everything else. But now all of a sudden, here come the millennials and we're getting this entirely different perspective on seeing the same things we were looking at before. But they look different now. All of it. Me too. Race relations. Every part of it. There's this enormous transition happening, but we're not there yet. We're not to zeitgeist yet. Right now, what we're in the middle of is battle. We're still not where God is taking us. Understand something. In every zeitgeist transition, we think it's us. We think it's just culture moving along. It isn't. It's always God. I want you to just, just thank you, Mario, for my little illustration here. I want you to, I want you to see, when we, what, what we say is the pendulum swings, right? And what we mean is, is that pendulum swings along a certain plane. We think of it as a pendulum hanging on a wall that it can only move one way, the things that happen in the world, right? And that they, there's a response, and then a response, and then a response, and then a response, as if it was a fairly simple dynamic, but it's not. It's a three-dimensional thing that's taking place. And I, I don't know how to quite do it without hitting the things, but you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to set it in motion. And what I want you to think about is what's happening in culture right now is a three-dimensional pendulum swing. There's a whole bunch of different axes. There's a whole bunch of different things in play. And what's happening is, is that God is moving us little bit by little bit over into an entirely different place than what has ever existed before in terms of. Now, there's a sameness to it, which we'll see. But I want you to see that nonetheless, its axis is shifting in a much more complicated way than the simple way that, say, a boomer might react to a millennial right now. They're getting it wrong because and have a simple explanation for how they're getting it wrong. And what you're missing is, is that they're actually operating on another axis entirely, which God is trying to make clear to everybody. And that when we don't embrace it, we don't change. And then we become old wineskin, and we become good for nothing, okay? Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. I've been saying that there is this transition that's happening from boomer to millennial. But it's not really, it's a zeitgeist of an age and a zeitgeist of an age. Millennials are the first thing to bring it in, but we'll see it's much more than just that. But what I want to do is I want you to understand we're going to go back and look at the boomer thing. Why? Because when you really understood what's happened before, you can start to embrace what he's going to do again. Because there is enough commonality in the ways that God does things. Even though the facts are different, the movement is the same. Now watch this. We're going to go all the way back to what made a boomer a boomer. Which means we got to go back to the boomers, not just parents, but grandparents. And more than grandparents. A generation usually lasts about 40 years. Okay? In the 20s, what do we call the 20s? The 1920s, this country, what was it called? The Roaring 20s. Okay? Now, the reason why it's the Roaring 20s is because prohibition came in, which was trying to lock everything down, and then people not wanting to not drink, 
rebelled against that and they started creating these speakeasies. And you've seen these before and this is filmed, so it's a little bit, but this is actually archival. This is footage from the time, it's just staged a little bit. But this is back in the time and you can see it's excess. Now, I don't, there's excess in drinking here, there's an excess in sexual mores here, there's an excess in wealth. This is the thing that people don't properly assess a lot of times when they're looking at the Roaring Twenties. This was a time of enormous wealth building. There was enormous prosperity going on. The stock market was going up and up and up and up, but what was more than the stock market was the black pots that surrounded Wall Street which was the speculation on which way the stocks were going to go, the, the average was going to go. And that economy was five times the size of the actual economy that was producing goods and buying stocks and bonds for. And so when the one went down, the five time went down and it brought everything down. So here's what I'm trying to say. The parents that gave rise to the boomers, my parents when they were kids, went through 1929. My, my parents were kids in 1929 when the stock market crashed. And at that point in time, we went from excess, roaring excess, to food lines. That says free soup, coffee, and donuts for the unemployed. And the lines, look at, by the way, look at their dress. Do you see how they're dressed up? They weren't all of them. They, 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 there wasn't a huge white collar thing at that point in time. There was a lot of people that were working in steel mills, but everybody aspired to not have to work with your hands and in dangerous places. And so they would dress a certain way. And the point is, look at these lines. Look at that. That was to get food. That's a food line. That's how you ate. That's how you stayed alive. This was a real thing. People were starving to death. There was, it wasn't just parents, it was kids. And it wasn't just the 1929, now watch. See, I'm telling you, it's always bigger than what we see. But in 1929, what happened in 1930? Does anybody know? Historians here, Greg Thatcher, you should know. Dust Bowl. Dust Bowl. Even before, it was starting before. But in 1930 is when it got critical. What happened was that the climate changed so rapidly, so strongly, that it dried out the ground so badly that when the windstorms came through that always come through, it picked up all of what used to be good dirt to grow something in and blew it away. In fact, the dust itself killed people. The dirt that was blowing, it was called the Dust Bowl. Millions of people got displaced. They left where they were and they... They hunkered into wagons. That's a wagon of Dust Bowl, the Dust Bowl family. You see the mother back there. You see all the kids. You know, the, anyway, always understands something. This is a bit sidebar, but in places where people are, to, are in danger of dying due to the most basic physical needs, food and shelter, they tend to have a lot of kids because not all the kids are going to survive and the kids that will can provide for them when they're old and they need help. So you had a lot of kids in these families. It was a survival technique, it's just a thing. And so what happens is they were moving to places like LA where there was the promise of new jobs. There was the promise of some kind of work. Angelus Temple, Amy Simple McPherson, the head of Foursquare, 
was feeding hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people every year. Huge soup lines. That's what made her MP Simple McPherson. You, you think about all the extravagant things she did. That wasn't it. What made her somebody that everybody loved was that the Angelus Temple, unlike any other church in the area, was embracing what was happening and was giving away food, millions of dollars of food at the time to feed people because all these people were coming into LA. So, that's the parents that are going to eventually raise, this is what their childhood was, the formative years as we call them. And then as time went on, what happens? Well, they start to collectivize in a sense, war. Right? World war. To this day, it's not possible for somebody who didn't go through it to know how close we came to losing all of it. The whole of the experiment that was capitalism and democracy in the West was within an inch of disappearing in the whole of Europe, which is the birthplace of it and because of God, because God did that way, way long time ago. But the point is it came very close to just dying. And it was a bunch of guys who got together, a bunch of women too, they got together and, and learned how to march and, and learn to follow orders and learn to do the right thing and come together as a group. And together as a group, you're always more than you are individually. And they came together as a group and literally they and the allies, but boy, the American presence in this was absolutely critical, saved the world. That is not an overstatement to say. They saved the world from totalitarianism. Now you see, they all had their uniform on and everything else, you see that. But you have to understand that after the war is over, they have learned now how to be a group and a corporate and a bigger thing. And so now they become, this is an auditorium. Now this happens to be a church service, but look past that. You, I, could, I, could, I was trying to find it, I just ran out of time to find it. But the bottom line is you could take an auditorium and, and because of the way that people have been brought up, this is a very important point now, because of the way that people were brought up, the way that they learn because of their past and everything else, the way that they learned, the most effective way to teach in this day was to put an expert on a stage and have a crowd come and listen. We now understand that to be the least effective way to teach anybody, but it's not that it's ineffective in the way that it teaches, it's that we don't believe in experts anymore. So we're questioning what the expert is saying. That's not how it was then. And I'm not saying everybody was that way, but there was a move towards conformity. And the idea was the expert would stand up there and would proclaim the way that things were. It turned out they were wrong, which is why we no longer believe them. But nonetheless, they stood up there and they said things and people dressed in their uniform. Do you see there's a uniform still? It's not an army uniform still, but it's a suit and a tie for a guy and it's a hat and a coat for a girl. You see it? Everybody dressed in their uniform and they came together and they built an unbelievable thing, the middle class. Again, you cannot understand now what it meant to have a middle class arise. It had never happened before in the history of the world. There was no such thing as a middle class. Maybe an isolated moment or two. But this idea that a bunch of people who a generation, their own lifetime, their childhoods were in danger of starvation, suddenly could build a corporation 
that would provide so lucratively for their family that the wife didn't even have to work. The man no longer had to go into the field to work the, to work the land and cut off his fingers and do all that kind of stuff. In the process of doing it, he could now go to work in a suit and a tie and he could become a middle manager. And that would make enough money for them to have a house and a car and maybe even a little place they could go visit in the summer. The world, when we talk about the American dream, this is what that's referring to. The world who was still coming out of starvation, who was still coming out of survival mode, was looking at this and was saying, how does that happen? The communists had one answer, which is collectivism, and that was actually killing people by the tens of millions and putting them in even worse poverty. We had another answer. And for a while there, it really, really worked. In fact, it is still working today. Read the statistics. Back in, I think it was, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but it was 40 years ago. No, that's longer than that. 50 years ago, 40% of the world lived in abject poverty, lived in danger of dying for lack of substance and shelter. Now it's less than 10. That doesn't mean that's still not a lot of people. It is. But there has been an unbelievable thing that has kicked in in terms of the middle class across much of the world that has created a wealth that has brought people into a place of relative safety. Even though it's hard because you might lose your job and it's competitive and it's cutthroat and all the bad things it gets, the other side of that coin is it lifted people out of poverty such as to be able to maybe lose their life. And that's the American dream. And this, of course, is Leave it to Beaver. Can anybody name the, what's the names? Who's the dad? What's the dad's name? What's the mom's name? And then who's? And? And the beef. Theodore. Theodore, really nicely done. Now I want you to see in this picture that the key person in this picture is because this picture is the beginning of Zeitgeist Change. This picture is the beginning of the 60s. What's the dad wearing at the dinner table? It wouldn't be 10 years before no dad would ever wear a tie to dinner at his own house. This is the beginning, and it's Wally. It's not Beeve, it's Wally. Because what happened was, is that all of a sudden, these kids of the middle managers could afford to go to college, a thing that was previously reserved for the wealthy and for people who were being trained in a trade, such as the law or medicine. You didn't go to college to take a liberal arts curriculum. There was no such thing as that before that. There was a curriculum, but you couldn't afford it. It happened, but nobody took it because it wasn't of any value. And you needed to get a job where you could make a living. But all of a sudden, we had enough prosperity that people could take a liberal arts education to get a, get a degree in English and then spend the rest of their life never even doing one thing with that degree. And this was the beginning of that whole movement. This was the beginning of Dustin Hoffman in a film that was, many were, but there was the key film about the zeitgeist transition that went from the boomers, I mean, that went from the father-in-law's best to the boomers. And what happened in that transition was real simple. The Wallies of the world looked at the people with the ties and their conformity and they're straight-laced, they're coming together, them subjugating, listen, them subjugating themselves in order to fit in, and they didn't have to do that anymore. Their children didn't have to do that anymore. And so they thought, I don't wanna do that. 
So in The Graduate, you have a scene that sums up perfectly the transition and the moment of the transition of uncertainty because you have Dustin Hoffman, who is The Graduate, just graduated from college with a liberal arts degree, and what is he gonna do with his life? That's the whole point of the movie. He has no idea. A guy that age that didn't know what he was gonna do with his life before would have starved to death. And now all of a sudden, here he was, the normal person in the culture, completely uncertain about what his future was. How does the movie end? He and the bride that he stole from the wedding sitting in the back of a bus going, oh crap, now what? They didn't know. What happens next? They know what they were belled against, but they didn't know where they were going to. And we have this amazing scene, is sound up? We have this amazing scene in The Graduate where the older generation, the other zeitgeist, is coming and helping out the new graduate and telling him how to get ahead in the world according to my definition of what getting ahead is. And you got the young guy who he's come alongside of to help him. And the young guy's going, I don't want anything what you're talking about. I don't know what I do want. Because remember, we're at a certain time in the zeitgeist transition, which is early on, to where there's tremendous uncertainty. So watch this. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Exactly, how do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. That's a deal. <laughs> I'm telling you, that captured the zeitgeist transition from one to another in the most elegant, perfect way you could ever do it. Dustin Hoffman doesn't know if he wants what you're offering at all or not. He just knows he doesn't actually want it. But he doesn't know what he does want. It sums it up perfectly. And within a couple of years of that scene, which would be early 60s, in the way that it was depicted, it came about later, but you get the drift. That was depicting early 60s. Within a couple of years of that, what happens? We go from black and white to technicolor. Literally, acid-induced technicolor. All of the different colors of clothes, the rejection of clothes. The rejection of everything that had come before. The absolute and total rejection of everything that had come before. By the way, do note, there's still a uniform, isn't there? <laughs> right? But it is definitely not the uniform of my father knows best, of Ward Cleaver, of the suit and tie. It's a complete rejection of everything it has to do with that. Now, that's where the boomers come from. I want to watch, I want to tell you something, because a lot of us right now are very concerned, and I'm going to look at the numbers here in a second, about what's going to happen with millennialism and nuns. You know what nuns are? Nuns are people who have rejected all religion, and they are the, I'll show it to you in a second, but they're now the largest segment of society, as a, as a, if you do it out, and they're by far the fastest growing. Nuns. And so we're thinking, my God, Christianity isn't even going to be around for a while, after a little while. But the fact is, is that in the time of the 60s and the hippies and the rejection of everything, something happened. After it had started to become something. And what happened? The Jesus movement. Literally, 
These stories, I've told you this before, but you have to understand, I know these people. I wasn't one because I'm at the end of the boomer cycle. But these are friends of mine. They were on the beach, tripping on acid. Somebody came and said, would you like to go to a party? Of course, they've piled into the van. They drove to somebody's house. They're still high. Somebody preached the gospel to them and it changed their lives completely. And it wasn't just a few people. It was millions and then tens of millions. It wasn't anything anybody could possibly do. Nobody could have done what was what's happening here. Nobody was evangelizing, so to speak, in the, in the way that we think of it. They were, but they weren't. You get the drift. The point is God was moving. God is the one who makes these transitions for his purposes. And we're going to see what his purpose is in. But what I want you to see is, and this is why it's important for us, the first level of what's important for us, you have to embrace what's coming so that you can be part of it. Because here's what happened. A whole bunch of hippies that were still dressing like hippies, they weren't doing drugs anymore, or maybe they still were, showed up at church with a bunch of people with ties. And the people with ties said, put a tie on. You see it? And the hippies went, no. What do I do now? And there was a guy named Chuck Smith. Extremely important figure in the history of Christianity. Chuck Smith. Foursquare, by the way. He later, because of Pentecostalism and Foursquare. But the Chuck Smith embraced what was happening, which is all of these young people coming to his church, and he saw the old people rejecting them. And he went, this is a move of God. I'm not rejecting it. I'm embracing it. I'm going to jump on board. I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden, this guy who used to do church in a normal way in a building is holding services out on the beach. And there's thousands of people showing up and they're baptizing hundreds of people regularly. And he doesn't know what's going on and nobody else does. But I'll tell you what, those people were genuinely saved and they genuinely changed the course of Christianity in America. God knew what he was doing and he did it. The Jesus movement On a worldly level, we went from the corporate conformity to individualism self, right? We went from corporate conformity. You have to conform in order to survive. You're going to starve to death if you become an outlier. Now, all of a sudden, you're not going to starve to death anymore. So being an outlier is where all the fun is and where all the action is. So we go to individualism, self. See, we move that way. And we think, you, you read that right there and you say, well, is that God? How could that be God? Well, let me propose to you one way, and I, I can tell you, we, I could do this on 15 to 20 different dimensions like this in a heartbeat. I could, I could identify other aspects of this, but I'm, I've only got so much time. God, having given us enough prosperity to not have to be consumed by survival, brought his children into a new depth of personal, individual, intimate relationship. This is what the boomers did at the beginning of their life cycle, of their zeitgeist. They went from, I go to church because my family goes to church and my community goes to church and my corporation goes to church and I go to church. They went to, I have a personal and intimate relationship with God. You don't even have in the vocabulary of Christianity have a relationship with Christ before boomers. 
And now all of a sudden salvation is nothing but Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. Before that, what was it? You're going to hell. Dangle your feet over the fires of hell because you're going to hell and repent so you don't go to hell. Now that's not exactly correct. Okay, that's almost more Jonathan Edwards and a previous zeitgeist, but you get the point. There is a new personal, intimate love relationship with God that now becomes how everybody thinks about God. Not just the boomers, the old people and everything else start to get what God's doing. And once they start to get what God's doing, that becomes the tipping point for it not just being a boomer movement, a generational iteration, a generational change, but it doesn't affect anybody but that generation to a genuine zeitgeist where it changes everybody. And all of a sudden, people are falling in love with God, massively. Now, but now that's been 50 years. And how long do these zeitgeists tend to last? About 40. Here's what happens to us every time anything lasts that long. Us. <laughs> we immediately are perverting individualism with drugs and sex and the whole thing that happened, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We immediately pervert it. But God's not mocked. He knows what he's doing, and he brings about a new thing. And when he brings about that new thing, it becomes this new thing. But then over time, we just figure out how to change it and pervert it and corrupt it. Not as obviously as this, but in more subtle ways, we co-opt it to our flesh and what we want. Not what he wants, not what he's trying to do. But we corrupt it to ourselves. Let me show you this. Watch this. Okay, the fallen human nature always perverts, corrupts, ruins. Here's a 1950s church. See the uniform? See the uniformity? See the conformity? See the, the whole thing? See that? Now, this is a Jesus movement church, which looks an awful lot like the church of today, doesn't it? Looks a lot like that, doesn't it? Only there's one more aspect to the church of today. Remember that small little house? that they were in before, that small little church, a couple hundred people. That's what it's become now. Not all, not all. We're not talking about all. We're talking about the movement. But you see, it becomes that. And, and on one level, that's unbelievably impressive. And let me say something now, because I'm going to say some not so good things about megachurches. But let me tell you, they're going to be around, and some of them are doing unbelievably good work. But you have to know something about the megachurch leaders. Even the megachurch leaders are getting a hold of what I'm saying to you right now. And literally, there are megachurches all over the country that are now decoupling. They're getting rid of their satellites. They're making them their own church. They're realizing, I don't want thousands of people in one building. It's just not working. It doesn't disciple people. People don't actually grow. In fact, here's the problem right here. And this is, again, just one slice of the problem. There's many others we could look at. As megachurches proliferated, theology and beliefs of those who attended them declined. As just one example, 50% of the people who believe, who go to a megachurch, believe that Jesus is the only way. It dropped recently under 50%, about five years ago. If you, um, an average megachurch attender doesn't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Which is 
pretty much essential. Jesus Christ is our savior. Jesus himself is in the garden, sweating his drops of blood saying, if there's some other way, God, take that. (laughs) But there isn't another way. It's the cross. It's the only way. And even right now, me saying that to millennial years sounds, how sort of culturally biased that language is. Jesus is the only way. Give me a break. See what I mean? Zeitgeist. Now watch. Just one example of that. Here's what we did. We went from a church where it was a family, where everyone knew each other, and so iron sharpened iron. We went from congregations that were two, three hundred people, where people knew each other. The biggest barrier in church growth, this is what most church growth is all about, is how to get from 300 to over 300. Because it's a huge barrier. The biggest one. Why? Because it's right when it goes from community to crowd. When you're under that, I know the names of almost every person in here. That's great, but that's not the point. I know your story. I can look into eyes and I know what's important to you. And I know what's important to you. Now, I have a position to where it makes it easier for me. But the fact of the matter is, is if when you look around this congregation, if we're functioning as a family, and I would propose, I would propose something to you now, we were operating more as a family about 10 years ago than we are today because of the massive transition that's happened in our congregation. But 10 years ago, when you looked around this place, there were people that you knew really well, and you were involved in their life. And you knew what their struggles were and you came alongside them when they needed it and you lifted hands. And you came alongside of them when they needed correction and you lovingly helped them correct. And all kinds of dynamic happened. It's supposed to happen in a family where iron sharpens iron, where people help, where people know each other. We went from that to a crowd where there's anonymity and even ironically isolation. People in mega churches will report not having any friends. Now, big churches have been trying to create small groups, so they'll have a small group and that'll help, but they'll still say my small group only meets once a week and I'm not really having life with them. And they'll still, people in the large churches will still talk about as a major problem, and and these big churches know this. They are researching this stuff. They're smart people and they're trying to figure out how to beat it. And this is one of the reasons why mega churches are now decoupling. Not a lot, but enough. It's a real thing. Because what they're saying is, it turns out you can't do it. You can't put 10,000 people in a room and expect them to know each other, expect them to live together. You need to put them in a small gathering. I still think Larry Osborne is the guy who's got this more than anybody else in all the megachurch, and he's the first multi-site megachurch in the country. And here's what Larry Osborne said. I'm never going to have a church that's so large that the people that go to that particular church don't know each other. So they got 10,000 people, and yet every congregation is about 300 because he knew this. Now, other people just want it big, and that second generation always screws it up, right? So do you get the point? You get where we're going here, right? And here's what the problem is. Millennials are rejecting the church. They're not just rejecting the church when they reject the church. What else do they reject? The whole God thing. In the U.S., the decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace, October 17, 2019. Let me just show you one graph from a little earlier than that, but this is still 2019. Do you see no religion over there? 23%. Same as Catholics, 
same as evangelicals, 23%. Other affiliations. Now, if you added all the Christians in there, they would still be larger. Do you see that? But look at the graph and look at the trends. Which one is going up fast? And is anything else going up at all? <laughs> we call these the nuns. I'm going to talk about them in one second. But right now, I need to do something. I need to drop out of this conversation that we're having about things, and I need to go to philosophy. I need to go to a, a dynamic so that we can grab a hold of it because it's going to help us understand where we actually are and what we're actually supposed to do about it. So just one second. Some of you have seen this before. Does anybody know what the dialectic is? Okay, here's, here's what it is. Real, real simple. The boomers had a move of God that taught them about intimacy with Christ. So they came up with a way of doing church that wasn't so much about a hymn and sit and then another hymn and stand and another and a, and a, a kind of a liturgy. It was its own liturgy, but the liturgy was worship, choruses, intimacy. A way of, our thesis was intimacy with God. The sermons became about intimacy with God. Everything moved to love. Everything moved to God loves you. The whole thing moved. And so that was our thesis, that what God was trying to do was show us that he loved us. It wasn't about fear, even though the beginning of wisdom is fear. That's not its end. Its end is love and intimacy, relationship. So we were trying to do that, and we did that. And that was our thesis. But what I just did in showing you the church and up to boomers is I just took you through the life cycle. At the beginning of it, it's very pure and real, right? It's a bunch of people that have been saved radically, being together in radical community, having the most amazing relationships, which are discipling people in the most amazing ways that has definitely happened in the last 50 years. The 70s and even into the 80s, the discipleship that was going on in churches that were two or 300 people or less, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anybody who went through it, raise your hand, and you, you can say, unbelievable, right? Still to this day, have you ever seen anything like it in terms of it growing you as a Christian? The intimacy that you had with the relationships that you had. That's just the way it is. So here we go. That's the thesis. But now it's gotten old, hasn't it? We have in our fallen nature worked it through to where we've gotten to a certain place to where it's pretty obvious what the problem is. You got 10,000 people in one room and you can go in there and be completely anonymous. How's that match with God trying to be intimate? <laughs> How's that match with God wanting you to be in community? Relationship, being one with each other. How does that match? It doesn't match. And so millennials are coming along, remember? Boomers are a great big glut. Remember, in the earlier one, in the 20s, the zeitgeist change was what? Economic collapse and environmental collapse. In this generation, in the boomer generation, it was the boomers were this big segment of population and God was trying to do something because the other cycle had matured to the point where it wasn't bringing about the good stuff anymore. So God did a new thing and now the millennials are coming and they're an even bigger percentage than the boomers were. And they're doing just what the boomers did. They're breaking everything ahead of it and everything behind it's gonna be brand new. But the key is, The key is it happens in reaction. So what happens to a thesis when it matures and we start to see where the cracks are and where the problems are, then we get an antithesis, an antithesis, a thing that comes against it. You see it? And then what happens is 
a synthesis. Now here's the, th why is that red? That should be orange. That should definitely should not be red. Our color calibration. Just note it, somebody, would you please? Okay, just note it. We'll fix it later. Don't fix it now. But that's supposed to be orange. And the reason why I made it orange is because it is not green and it is not red. The key to a synthesis is it is not about what came before. It is about discovering what the problems were with came before and blowing the whole thing up until all of a sudden a new thing arises that is truly new. It is not what the boomers were and it's not what the millennials were. It's not what the people before the 20s were and the people after. It becomes a new thing of its own. That's the key. And so we get a new synthesis. And then, of course, just to show you how progression happens in society, okay, then we get an a new thesis. The synthesis becomes a thesis. There becomes an antithesis from it. And then a new synthesis comes out of that. And then a new antithesis comes out of that. And then, a, see, you see it? And it just keeps going like that. That's the dialectic. Now, you have to have that in your head because I want you to show you where we are exactly in the dialectic, in the moment of where we're in right now. What we've got right now is the boomers have done their thesis and they've run their course. They're at an end of their time. It'll still survive in various ways, but the vast movement of things is changing. And now you've got the millennials coming on and they just became the major part of the workforce. And they have now become the major factor in cultural and societal change. Me too race sensitivities, etc. okay? So you've got a huge bang that's happening between the two right now, right? And the millennials or the boomers are the people in the, you know, in the suit and tie telling the new people what's wrong with them because they can see it so clearly because they're only operating on one axis. See, I know what you're doing and you're wrong. It's only on this axis. When in fact, God is doing something much more complicated and what's happening is, is that he's bringing about a new thing altogether. Now watch this though. Boomers and millennials butting head to head, the change in that is just what we call iteration. Iteration means same thing, but changes. There's a generation X. Many people in this room are generation X. There were changes that came about because of generation X. They don't, there really were. It may not seem like it. What? Thanks for noticing. Thanks for noticing, exactly, see? And that's exactly how Xers feel, right? Because it was an iteration. They wanted it to be more than that, but it just wasn't. It just, the, the, the other thing hadn't fully, the zeitgeist hadn't fully run its course. And the things that they did, it helped, to, it helped to make some changes and so on. But here we are. Iteration. How do you get to the point to where you got zeitgeist transition? Now watch this. Remember this graph? What we call this is the rise of the nuns. No religion. On its own, that's just a butting heads of the boomers. Millennials and boomers butting heads, that's all that is. It leads to iteration until something else happens. The rise of the Duns, this is 2015 article. The fastest growing group in Christianity now is what's called the Duns. Here's what it means. You, this is my generation, by the way. You love God. You haven't dropped your relationship with him at all. To the contrary, what you're now seeing is church feels particularly, a certain kind of church, feels very corporate and not really about you at all. They want your butt in the seat to look full and they want the tithe from your wallet to build a bigger building. And that's what it feels like. It feels like they need me here for their reasons and their purposes. 
They're not about trying to reach me and meet my needs. Now, that's not how the churches think about it. You understand? But that's what it begins to feel like. And so people say, I'm just done. I'm done with church. I'm not done with God. Nuns are done with God or never knew him in the first place. Duns, what they're saying is, I'm just done. I'm not going to do this church thing anymore. It's not actually growing me. It's not actually changing me. It's a whole bunch of programs that they're running. And are other people being helped and saved? Yeah, I think so, hopefully. But really, I don't know. It's just, it's not because it's all about me. It's just, I just don't really believe in it anymore. Can I tell you something? I'm a done. I still love the church, and I will always go to church until the day that I die. And I am not in the category of people who still go to church because they're faithful. Because 14% of the population is identified as being faithful. And guess how a percentage of the church, people go to church now regularly? 14%. The vast majority of people who go to church do so because they're faithful. I'm a done. I literally said out of my mouth for the first time, long story, you have to understand the context. But a friend of mine is working in a very large church. He just started working there. He's got an unbelievable ministry history. I mean, he was working in maintenance, but he was got an unbelievable, I mean, ran missions organizations and, and just an unbelievable history, but he's older and he's just time for him to, and he, he gets a job at this church and he gets cancer. It is likely to kill him soon. And the church changed their HR policy to not cover him. Now, did they really do that? There's some room for, but they did. How the hell could you want to be a part of that? Seriously. Well, you can apply to our benevolence, and we've got really good benevolence. But this is going to ruin our insurance. I'm sorry I didn't say it, but you knew what I said. This is how I feel about it. I cannot go back to what I used to believe in. I can't. You know why? Because I've seen what God's been doing here. <laughs> I see what happens when you go away from corporate and you go to what's right for people. You don't let the organization make the decisions and suck all the energy and resources out. And you start thinking about how do we grow people? And I got to tell you, we've done that very, very poorly in many ways. But I can tell you, we've done it with our heart and God has met it massively in between steering teams and having people from the congregation preach and all of the other things, there's things that I've seen that make me say, anything over 300 shouldn't exist. Now, I don't really mean that because I think God can still use those other things. I really believe that. But I just got to tell you, I pray to God that he returns the church down to something that is genuinely communal. It's certainly what we're doing. Everything that we're about is trying to get us to where we're a family, but not a family here, a family in there and there and there and there. And I think next week, depending on what the Lord does, I might be talking about that. I think I'm going to. But the bottom line is let me leave that at that right now because what I said to this guy that I have never said in my whole life before is I said, I hate the church. And I didn't mean I hate God's church. I love Jesus' church. I hate what we've let it become, what we've made it. I hate it. I think it's destructive. I think it's harming people. And I can tell you the millennials are looking at it and they're saying, don't you see what's wrong? 
And the fact is, is we're all lobsters in a pot, even millennials, where the temperature just gets, turns up a degree at a time. We know the good motives that we had in the beginning. And so we just don't see what it's actually become. And so we resist change. Instead of being a participant in it. This is called the Duns. I'm a Dun. I'll still go to church. But I'm going to find, when I'm done here, I'm going to find. The nuns plus the duns, that's a zeitgeist. Do you see it? When the millennials, the largest generation, and the boomers who are no longer the largest generation are dying off, but when you put the top and the bottom together, what do you got? Change. <laughs> zeitgeist change. A change in perspective. I'm telling you, this is not a hard thing to do. I am trying to understand what millennials are saying all the time because I keep finding such richness in it. I keep finding things that are so incredibly important in what they're saying. I may not agree with it every way that they're saying it, but I get it. I get that God's trying to do something. But here's the key. Remember when I talked about the boomers? Remember what I said was is that we were at a certain place and then came the thing that God did that brought the God part to be obvious, here's what I'm telling you right now. The God part of this transition is not obvious yet. Nobody knows what it is. I think it does have to do something with smaller, but that's just a practical thing. What does it mean at the deeper levels? What does it really mean in the terms of the relationship that God is trying to build with his people that is markedly different than what he was doing with the boomers and the people before him that takes us to the next place? What is that going to be? And here's the answer. Nobody knows. Everything is going to change. God's the one trying to change everything. Look at this. The boomer zeitgeist life cycle started with rejection, went to cultural and social concern. This is the thing. It didn't, the, the, the boomers who ended up selfish didn't start that way. It was, about, it was about getting, I didn't need money and I want to be friends with race and I want to be friends with people that are different than me. It was all about inclusion. It was about love. Right? There were huge social and, and uh, cultural changes. And then it went to self-fulfillment. And then the way that we end up corrupting things, it ended up becoming self. And that's why millennials can look at what boomers are doing right now and say, okay, boomer. It, it, your, your, your desire and your actions aren't matching anymore. There needs to be an integrity between those two things that doesn't exist anymore. Usually because you're old and you just don't want to die poor or have to work until the last day of your life. So very understandable reasons, but nonetheless, it's happening. Here's the life cycle of millennials, and here's where we are. Watch this. Their first one is rejection, right? Rejection of what the boomers are saying. I don't know what it means, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do different than this. I just know I don't want that. <laughs> rejection. And it has huge cultural and social concern in it, right? You don't care about social and, and cultural change but our concerns, but I have these in my heart and you're not addressing them. See it? But here's where we are. You see where we get the question marks? What's gonna come next? We don't know, it's too new. And then what's gonna come after that, which is gonna be the thing that'll kill it? We don't know. We don't know. Uncertainty. Here's synthesis. No one knows what it's going to look like. We're not even through the full butting of the head. 
We haven't gotten the new thing. No one knows what it's going to look like. Not boomers, not millennials. No one. God does. And I hope and expect that if I'm praying to God that our response to what I'm saying right now, and this is something God is saying across the country to many, many, many people, I pray that people's response to what God is saying will be such that he will bring us another Jesus movement type thing that will again get people right with God in the middle of something that didn't really look like God. But there is a God in it. So the nuns were going up. Well, guess what was happening right before the 60s happened and the Jesus movement happened? Spirituality, at least as far as Christianity was concerned, was nosediving. It wasn't nuns. It was other Eastern beliefs and so on, right? But you see this? Nobody knows. So all we can do is try to get the next step right. Some of you remember that a couple of weeks ago I was up here before Christmas, and I had a moment, and the moment was so prophetic. God marked it in my soul. And what I was doing is I was saying, the problem is, is that when you're going a certain direction, and I'm going to change it just a little bit from what I did, but when you're going a certain direction, you have all your understanding of how it goes and how it works and what it was about and what you can do and what you can't do and why you can do it and why you can't do it. And you're moving that way. And then all of a sudden God comes and he says, now I want to do a new thing in you. I want to create a new thing. And here's what you cannot do. You cannot take your understanding and go apply it to the new thing. Do you remember this? Because if you apply it to the new thing, what will happen is you'll just end up building it in the image of the old. It won't be the new thing. The thing I did wrong in that moment there was I was doing a parallel track. What I needed to do was a, was a perpendicular track. See, you have to get out of everything that's moving like that. And then you have to get a hold of what God is doing so that you can start moving like this. It's the only way you can get to where he's going, which is to say, and this is what I said last time, and this is what is so important for us right now, you don't know what's coming next, so the only thing you can do is to ask him what to do next. The big picture, you don't know it. You don't know where it's going. If you did, you would take your tools of this and you would try and build that, and you'd get it wrong. So what we have to do is we have to strip down. What does this sound like? We have to strip down and become incredibly obedient even if we don't understand what God is saying. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you know what we've been preaching for the last two years? No matter what God, no matter what's happening, it doesn't matter if you know it or not. The only thing that matters is, is that you obey him in the next thing. This is before I knew any of this. And what he's been doing for two years in this church is training us how to not have to need to know what's coming next, to only care and to be about what to do next, whatever that is. Obedience, that's what he's been teaching us for the last year and two now. What's the next step from obedience? Participation. <laughs> what's that? Yeah, it might be. I would assume it has to be. Yeah, I love it. But here's, I want to go back to Justine's point, though. We go from obedience if we start thinking of it as participation. See, obedience is one thing, and it certainly connotes action, doesn't it? it certainly commits, connotes choices. But here's what I want to say. I think the Lord, the Lord is moving us from, I want you to obey. He still wants us to obey, but what he wants us to do is to participate to commit to a new path, whatever it is, not having to know. 
The question I believe the Lord is asking us today, count the cost. Is this important enough for you to ask him to do this in and through you? Count the cost. Justine and I, when we were talking about her sermon, it was the first sermon of the year. Wanda had wisely advised, and I'm in total agreement with her. She said, don't have people sign up for a bunch of things at the beginning of the year. Justine heard that and said, I'm concerned that my sermon about participate is asking too much of people who are just getting over sugar highs and being off for two weeks. And I said, that's exactly where the Lord wants us to go. Just present it. And I didn't know I was going to preach this today. And from there, what I'm telling you is this is what he's telling us to do next. Are you willing? Are you going to count the cost? Understand, your participation is going to cost you something. It's not going to be easy. It's not never easy. It's easy when the way is well trod. It's harder when you don't know. So are we going to participate? And let me give you one inspiration to do it. You remember I've been saying that Europe is 2% Christian? This is, a, this is from 2015. See the big yellow? You can't hardly see it again. The projector isn't quite right. But France, Germany, Sweden, Finland, all of these are, all of these are light yellow. And light yellow means that less than 10% of the population goes to church. And now you have to understand, France and Germany are where Christianity started in the modern era. And they're less than 2% of people now believe in God and are committed to his church and do this. England is only between 10 and 15%, and that's because there's been massive evangelistic efforts in England, and they're making a difference. They're still not taking it from 2% to 50%, but it's over 10% now. The dark green ones that are more than 30%, guess why they are? Catholic. They're not going to church because of Jesus. They're going to church because of the church. This is what you do. This is your community. This is your social obligation. This is your requirement, your sacrament, so to speak. This is what you do in order to be right with God. You go to church. You can do anything else you want, but go to church and confess. Now, too harsh. I got it. But understand the point. Spain half Europe and half Catholic. <laughs> but this is what I want you to see, and here's what I want you to understand, and I've been saying this for 20 years. I've been here for 22 years, and very soon after I got here, I started saying something. We're going the same way that Europe is going. We are. The globe turns. The birthplace of Christianity is now hardly Christian at all. And we're either going to learn from or be doomed by it. And what I mean is, and this is why God didn't let me go on. He brought me to this question. Count the cost. Is this important enough for you to get off of the lazy river? Count the cost. And get into whatever it is he's trying to do. Even if you don't know what it is. Are you going to do that? The story of Gideon comes to my mind. 10,000 men to go fight a war, which you're probably going to win because there were 10,000 men. And God said, I don't want that. So tell everybody who's scared, go home. The vast majority of them did. 
there was still plenty of them left, and so they went down to the water. Tell them to drink from the water. And the ones that pick it up and lap from it like a dog out of their hand, there was 300 of those people. Take those and go do what you're going to do with it. And here's what I want to say. It's, it's, the, it's the story of, you know, 7,000 haven't bent their knee nor kissed Baal, says God to Isaiah when he's running. God doesn't need a lot. He just needs somebody who will stand in the gap. He'll need somebody who will say, I'm in. I care about this. It's important. And not just for me, but for the future generations. I'm in. Now, what does that mean? You don't have any idea. (laughs) But I think what God was trying to bring us to was a week of prayer. And I want everybody to pray this week, and I want you to pray specifically that question. I don't care what it costs me. Am I in? And here's, what, here's the best thing to ever do in prayer with God. Be honest. Don't say in your good Christian way, oh, yes, I'm going to be a good, faithful, you know, and then not be that. Don't do that. What I want you to do is be honest, and I want you to tell him there's parts of me that really, 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 really want that. And there's parts of me that really, 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 really don't. I'm having the boomer millennial, I'm having the dialectic, I'm having the thing happen inside of me, and it's crashing into me. And I just need you, God, to change me so that my desire is there. Because in my heart, in my inner man, I want this. But I see another law at war in my members wanting something else. What am I going to do about that? I'm going to go to God and say, save me from myself. Do whatever it takes. I understand it's going to be costly, but do whatever it takes to make me one of those who is the 7,000 who have never bent their knee nor kissed Baal, who you can change the world through. 12 people change the world. It's not numbers. It's people that are committed. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come to you. I believe having been spoken to by you, imperfectly, of course, because it's through me, but nonetheless, we get the point. And I'm asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name that you would take this moment and that you would blow it up in our hearts. You would make it bigger. You would cause us to actually embrace this call this week and actually pray about it, actually seek you about it, actually go after those areas in us which are still holding back, asking us to put our mind on the things of the Spirit and not the rest. I'm coming to you right now, and I'm asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name, Make me, make us, those that have said yes and meant it, knowing that we couldn't do it on our own, but saying we give you the right to do whatever you need to do to get us there, no matter what it cost. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, reach in front of you and there's a communion cup.
There's two cups, in fact. Take the lower one, in which is the life that we have been leading. The one that we've broken and busted up and done everything with because we keep choosing our own things. And we recognize we've done that, and so we put our finger in there and we break them. And now we lift them up to you. And we look right through this cup to the cross of Christ. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God. Jesus, you healed us. By your stripes, we are healed. You're the one that makes this happen. So in Jesus' name, God, we are asking you, your kingdom come, your will be done in me as it is in heaven. To that degree, nothing short. In Jesus' name, take this cup together. Now lift up this other cup in which is this glorious life. This life that is absolutely surpassing. In Jesus' holy and most incredible name, let that be the life that courses through our veins, your life, not ours, yours, forevermore. In Jesus' name, take this cup together. Ushers, thank you for coming forward.